0: High drive. That's trouble.
1: It's an even-up ballgame.
0: And Yogi Berra. belt one, And the
1: chemical blow to Duke Snyder. High over the screen and into Bedford Avenue. And the ballgame is even. The Yankees a moment ago before that swing, but down a game and down a run. They're still down a game, but the runs are even.
0: Hey now, what is up? It is Steve Bennett. This is the Sportscasters Podcast. Season number 10. We are up to episode number 12. Uh, I want to thank Jeff Passan for being on the show last week. Uh, New episode tonight. It is, what, Friday? Going into Friday, July 17th. And um, good show for you today. Uh, John Pessa is here. Uh, to talk about his book about Yogi Berra, A Life uh, Behind the Scenes. We'll do that after the book club update. Going to get started with something a little bit different tonight. Uh, I don't know if you've been noticing this like I have on Twitter, uh, but since there's been no sports and uh, no concerts and no real new movies, I don't know, just a, a kind of a, a dead spot in culture, it seems like something that's popped up are many, many, many brackets. Many brackets. And one of the kings at doing these brackets is a guy from Long Island uh, named Joe. And he works for Newsday. Uh, He's a good dude. And he's done brackets on Billy Joel, Seinfeld, and Curb Your Enthusiasm characters, Beatles songs, and now he's starting one up uh, on Seinfeld episodes, Uh, Joe Maniello. He's from, like I said, he works at Newsday. He edits some work there and writes headlines there. And he does this separate of that on his free time. And in a minute, we're going to go to an interview I did with him, see what's up with the rise of brackets, what works about it, what doesn't work. What doesn't work, and he got into this before I had a chance to ask him about it, but what doesn't work is the one seeds win, right? That's the negative is, you know, When you open this up to the masses and to so many casual voters, what you have is just one seed's winning. Now, on this one Pearl Jam website that I go to, a fan site called Red Mosquito, they've been doing these Pearl Jam uh, brackets for years now in March. And what they do, and I mentioned this to Joe too, is they retire each winner. So once the song wins, it's not in the bracket anymore. And that's great if you're going to run a bracket over and over again. How Joe solves the problem of every one of his brackets, final four, being one seeds. I'm not sure, not even sure. It is a problem. It just kind of creates a little bit of an anticlimactic uh, exercise. It's the most fun in the beginning to see if there will be an upset and then least fun as it goes along when you find out there isn't one. Uh, But we'll talk to Joe about that in a second. We'll do the book club and then we will do the interview with John. And then one last thing about Paula playing t-ball. We'll kind of end out with that. So with all that said, uh, let's just get right into it today. Uh, We'll take a break, and we'll be right back with the debut, uh, the first time ever, Joe Maniello.
2: So ambitious for a juvenile, but then if you're so
1: smart, tell me why are you still so afraid?
0: Our first guest tonight appears at the top of most power rankings of Long Island natives. He's a St. John's graduate. His day job is at Newsday, but he spends his nights making brackets on Twitter and he's making a sportscaster's debut today. A warm welcome. To Joe Maniello. Hey, Joe, how you doing today?
3: Doing good, Steve. Thanks. How are you?
0: Good. Thanks for doing this. How's uh? How's How's New York City today?
3: Things are okay. You know, it's been a weird year, but it's actually kind of flying by now. I feel like early on in March it was going so slow, but now it's half halfway there. I feel like it's going to be Christmas before you know it.
0: Yeah, the that night that the basketball game basically you know uh cuban looks at his phone and the league is suspended like from that day for the next 30 felt like 3000 and then yeah. i don't know if we got used to it or what but now it seems like it's picking up again are you optimistic about these sports that they're going to actually start up or just as a um, observer how do you feel about it
3: Overall, I like, to, I like to think I'm an optimist, but I, I kind of feel pessimistic about it, to be honest with you. It just doesn't feel like it's... Um, I just don't see how it's logical, how it's going to happen. I, I think like the NHL will work out because it's going to be in a bubble and there's not as much face-to-face contact, I guess. But I feel like the NFL, it's like, I don't see how... You know, I'm an NFL guy. I love the NFL. I do the picks column at Newsday. My favorite sport, You know, I watch the Red Zone every Sunday. If I could just have the NFL and get, get rid of every other sport, I would sign up for that. But uh, I, just don't, I just don't see how it's going to happen. They haven't even been together yet the teams and it's so much physical face-to-face contact i don't know how the virus won't spread and even baseball i mean so far the test results are really positive in a good way not positive you know negative but i just feel like it's uh all it takes is one one guy to, one team to have a, an outbreak and all oh, hell breaks loose so I, I don't know i just feel like it's too uh too risky for a lot of the guys so i don't know if it's going to happen
0: i was thinking about the, this with football yesterday and the day before you know, we're starting to see a little bit of evidence that maybe this burns out. Like you know, in New York City, um, in some places in Europe, uh, the the death potency seems to burn out a little bit. Then I read an article about the T cell immunity and how herd immunity might actually be closer to ten or twenty percent, not the sixty we were thinking. We learn so much every day that I just wonder if maybe this kind of early summer outbreak here. Maybe it works in the NFL's favor that by the time we get to the fall, maybe they maybe it takes an extra month. Maybe they don't start till October. I know they have a lot of contingency plans in place. Basically, what I'm saying is, I'm just trying to stay optimistic. You know, I'm just trying to yeah, definitely it's just the, trying the to hold on to anything unpredictable. Right, I'm trying to hold yes. on to anything. Um, I am also my my number one team is my football team. I mean, that's a huge part of my identity, a huge part of my life. So, uh, and they're a team that you know, there's urgency to win and they need this season to be played. So, um, what team is uh, I'm a big Saints fan. I've been since 1987. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I've seen every game since 1996 as soon as I could drive to a bar and watch them. And um you know, I've been to New Orleans a bunch of times, but you know, they need this season to be played. they already you know, part of their advantage is going to be taken away and the likelihood that there won't be fans and they won't get those games in the Dome, but Well, they'll get to play them. They just won't be the same. But, yeah, Yeah. it's crazy. Like I said, I'm trying to hold on to any optimism about that. Uh, Let's talk about the brackets for a second first because I've been fascinated by um, the rise of the bracket during corona. Um, Every year, for a long time now, it seems like, around March Madness, you would see – Brackets besides basketball pop up for various things. I'm a big Pearl Jam guy, and on the One Message board, I've, they've been doing a March Madness Pearl Jam bracket for, you know, 10 years now, retiring the winner every year. Um,
3: oh, so each year the winner from last year doesn't participate? Yeah, they,
0: it's retired, you know. Oh, that's it, a good,
3: idea. that's a cool idea. Yeah. yeah, instead
0: of having black or a live win every year, once it wins, it's out. Um, oh, that's a cool idea. Yeah. So, but then usually. April comes and they go away. <laughs> I've noticed this year more and more people doing brackets for more and more things, and obviously we're f- further away, f- further away from March than I've ever seen them. And then I started following you, and you've done Billy Joel, you've done um, the Beatles songs, you've done a couple mini ones with the Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm.
3: Characters. That, that was a full one. Oh, that was a full one. That was, that, that was last year. Yeah, that was actually before. That wasn't even in March. That was just an idea we had. and right. We did it, but um, yeah, go ahead.
0: Tell me about the rise of these, why you wanted to do them, why you think they've been so successful. We'll take it one at a time, but yeah, sure. Yeah, let's start well, with just the events for it.
3: Yeah, I mean, March Madness has always been my favorite favorite event, sporting event. Like uh, Football is my number one, but I, I run the office pool. March Madness, I, you know, I I love the excitement the first two days, Thursday and Friday, all those first round matchups and the upsets. So I've always loved the idea of March Madness and filling out a bracket. And like last year, we, my friend Mike Gavin, who used to work at Newsday, and I, uh, we just thought about doing like a Seinfeld. I was, I was like, we should do like a Seinfeld versus Curb bracket. It would be fun for, you know, people love Seinfeld, people love Curb. Put it out on Twitter and you know, to me the difference is like, some people put out a bracket. Like I've seen people put out like, you know, best sandwiches or best Italian food or whatever, you know, any kind of thing, music, movies. And it, they just put the bracket out. To me, the extra step is actually putting the matchups to a vote on Twitter. That, that to me, is the difference. You have to have to let the fans determine the winner. I mean, anyone, and it's not easy, but anyone could put a bracket together and just put it out there. But then to actually go through with it and, you know, determine a winner, to me, is the, that, that's the most fun part, let people actually vote. So we did Seinfeld Curve last year. And George beat Larry. It was all four ones. W- one thing I'm running into is that all the popular. Yeah, I was going to bring that out. And make the <laughs> yeah. final four. Yeah, I was going to bring yeah, that so up. Billy Joel. Mm-hmm. Like the Billy Joel thing was really fun. Like, so the Billy Joel this year, we had already planned on doing that before the pandemic. I was thinking, let's do it like, let's start it like right before March Madness starts. And like, we'll make sure not to do the votes on the days of the big games. And we'll do it in March. But it'll be like an extra, you know, when there's no games, people will still be into the idea of filling out brackets. And. You know, I live in New York, but you know, I work on Long Island. So, believe Joel's a big thing around here. Sure. So, tons of people are into it, and not just New York and Long Island. There are people voting in Australia and England, like all over all over the world. So, uh, all over the country too. It was just, it was just very popular. But uh, steam from Italian restaurant versus piano man, was, you know, very predictable. So, same thing with the Beatles and Hey Jew, Let It Be. But the idea, someone said, the idea is actually like you know, the whole build up and the actual voting. And it's, if you get if you get a predictable final, so be it. It's still, still a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, I. You were saying like, okay. So here's what I think separates you from the others is the detail you put into the rankings and to the seating, and obviously then uh, the voting and the Twitter voting and things like that. Have you had any trouble with ballot stuffing?
3: <laughs> ballot stuffing, like people trying to <laughs> has anyone tried to the, manipulate
0: uh... the vote in any way?
3: Well, no. But uh, it's funny you say that because um, a friend of mine from. Out in San Diego, he works on newspaper Jay. They did a um, they did like the best movies one for their newspaper. Sure. And uh, there was like some kind of controversy over like, it got down to like the final eight or final four, and Hoosiers versus Caddyshack. It was like Caddyshack was winning, and all of a sudden, like Hoosiers got like a hundred votes, and went like in like from the same server or something like that, and they were like they thought that some guy was like basically voting over and over again, so they didn't let that count, and like Caddyshack wound up winning. And another guy dan who's on twitter uh he also had the uh, the best um comedies yes best, i you know, was voting that right? yeah. and uh, and and um slapshot was against the airplane and what happened was the 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 hansen brothers the actual account they saw the tweet and they they retweeted it to all their followers and they were down by like you know 60 to 40 or 70 to 30 and all of a sudden it kept going and going. They actually took the lead, and then airplane won by like one vote, like five hundred to four ninety nine. <laughs> so there are some. So if you know someone famous doesn't get it, well, it's funny. Yeah, I forgot Keith, Keith Olbermann. Yeah. Keith Olbermann. I saw that. He, um, he picked up on it, so I guess you know one of my followers. You know, I, I don't have that many. I have four thousand followers. He has nine hundred nine hundred forty thousand. So without him, we were getting like you know five hundred, seven hundred, maybe a thousand votes. But once he retweeted them, we were getting over two thousand. The final got four thousand votes, but. What's interesting was, you know, I was, you know, grateful that he was so into it and retweeting it and making it more popular, but he uh, added commentary to some of them. And the last one, I remember posting it and like, let it be was up 55% to 45% with like 700 votes within like the first 10 minutes. And then like, you know, I was tweeting some other stuff. I looked back 10 minutes later and Hey Jude was up by the same amount, 10%. And I realized, Oh, oh he must've, uh, he must've said something. So he retweeted it and said, uh, a reminder, let it be sucks. <laughs> so I don't know if. I don't think that his he's that influential where people are you know changing their minds because he, he said it, but I don't think it, uh, it helps to uh, let it be.
0: See, I don't know about you, but I think all that stuff should be totally within fair game. Like if it gets picked up by, like you said, the Hanson brothers, I think that's awesome for for the game. Well, you
3: know, I, I think it's fun. I think it's fun for the bracket and publicity, but at the same time, if you're putting it together, you want like a fair win. I don't know if that's really fair where people are voting. Like, I mean, to me, airplanes of superior movie I, I mean not that slap shot's bad but uh, even though i'm not a huge fan i know a lot of people disagree with me but uh i think that you know you don't want the person like totally changing the vote you know if it's close it's close and then they get a few more votes but i don't think it's really feel like you know if you were doing like a, a 90s music one and it was a great song versus like a hansen song and then the Hanson, you know the other Hanson brothers <laughs> <retweeted> it. Is <laughs> it really fair that, is that is that one you know well
0: i guess it depends yeah. and i was going to ask you this like what do you want to get out of this the most? Do you want, you know, um, increased visibility for your Twitter account and increase in followers? Do you want, you know, um, a super fair tournament? Do you want maybe the fun of it getting picked up by you know, like the the example you've used, the Hanson brothers or whatever? Like to you, what is the ultimate goal? Is it just killing time
3: and having fun? Well, I think mean, yeah, the main thing is just having fun. I'm, yeah, I like to make people I like to make people happy, so. It's just a fun distraction. I think 2020 needs something like this, no sports. And even with sports back, I think they'll still be popular, but I'm not going to do as many, obviously. This is just uh, the perfect time for it, I think. And uh, the Beatles thing, you know, got picked up by Olbermann and then Howie Rose, the voice of the Mets, uh, tweeted out of bracket. And uh, John Justrensky from WFAN had me on as a guest. He's a huge Beatles fan. He was so into it. So it got a lot of publicity. I mean, you know, it's nice to have – it's nice to add followers and get publicity. I mean, everyone likes that. But the main goal is to just, you know – give people a distraction it's, and I find it fun like I love the idea of you know I'm very competitive like I like the idea of oh my favorite song won or my favorite hold on I got a jet flying over me outside hold on <laughs> I got a um, you know like I feel like it's just fun to see the voting I, I, you know, I love I love the idea of upsets like we don't we haven't really gotten that many upsets but uh, also close votes like in the Beatles solo bracket one we had um,
0: Instant, Instant karma. karma yeah I saw um, Yeah,
3: I think it was uh, oh it got my mind set on you by George Harrison and It was literally one vote. It was 352 to 351. So it was like that kind of stuff is like as thrilling as something can get on Twitter. I mean, sometimes, you know, you go through Twitter and it's the same old mundane stuff and then you get something fun like that. It's, It's almost like a sporting event in itself, as weird as it sounds. Well,
0: I will say this, that nothing is worse than the pit that Twitter can be. And to have your timeline filled with this is just joyous compared to that oh appreciate it you know what i Thank mean you. like i spent the last four months muting and unfollowing as much toxic stress inducing stuff out of my timeline as i can and i love to have it feel like this listen jeff proman is actually a friend of mine through this show and i've said this to his face but i can't follow his twitter account you know it's just too dark and depressing and um you know, this is the opposite of that. and I love that about it. Was that the first time you were ever on a, a fan?
3: On the fan, yeah, I've done yeah. I've done a few radio shows and podcasts, but not the fan. That's pretty. That's funny. Sick. I, I like to I like to joke that uh, it kind of tells you how good my NFL picks record is, is. Is this the first time I was on the fan is to discuss the Beatles bracket instead of my NFL picks? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Although Mike has been struggling with his NFL picks, so they can't be bragging too much. Yeah, his well, he last...
3: picked... <laughs> Oh no, JJ. Even JJ said it because uh, it's tough. I mean, but they only pick a few games. So I, I, you know, when I do my column, I pick every game every week against the nice. spread, which is it is not easy. And I, you know, I'm a big overthinker and second guesser, and like sometimes you just got to go with your gut. Do you bet as well, or do you just do the picks? No, uh, nah, ever... I, I used to bet, but I used yeah. to bet when I was younger. But uh, just do like you know some friendly pools and stuff like that. But no, nothing, nothing serious.
0: Yeah, when I was a kid, my grandpa used to run numbers. He was like a small time bum. And he would run numbers. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, that was, like, my, like, initial, um, you know, introduction to football. Sitting next to my grandfather with his little notebook out and all the spreads. <laughs> and every time my grandmother would get on the phone, he would scream at her, Paul, get off the phone! Because he was waiting for calls to come in. And Oh, uh-huh. man. Yeah, fun time back then. And back then, it, like, I didn't even know there was anything wrong with it. I'm still not sure there was. I yeah, mean, technically good. there was, but I don't know. You know, it was small-time yeah. stuff. But, um. Yeah, so the brackets are awesome. I love it. What about? The, let's talk about the Seinfeld one. You debuted it last night. Uh, the concept was you and a committee put the first forty-eight on the bracket, and now there's going to be some play-in rounds uh, to, to fill it out to the full sixty-four. Uh, let's start with um, putting it together. Uh, how the committee worked. Your own process. Tell me a little bit about creating the Seinfeld bracket.
3: Yeah, definitely. Well, last year when we did the Seinfeld Curb, I had thought about doing like an episode one because I was, you know, even though it was fun doing it, you know, George beat Larry and it was a typical expected final, you know, final. So I thought maybe an episode one would be more open to upsets and more, you know, different things happening. So I had put that in the back burner. I hadn't really thought about it until a friend Larry had mentioned it on, uh, when people were saying, oh, your next record should be this, your next record should be that. He had said, how about a Seinfeld Episodes one? And I said, it's funny. I, I had thought about that, but I wasn't sure. And then once uh, he said that, it kind of like made me want to do it. And then I thought the Beatles one was really hard to pick 64 songs. I, I formed like a f- small committee for that, a few big Beatles fans, like four guys. But uh, this one was just as tough. I mean, Seinfeld has 168 episodes, and you can easily do two brackets you could do a bracket of 128 but i feel like you know the the fun of it is getting to 64 that's the magic number it's a sweet spot
2: right. that's
3: what people think about march madness so going through it i was like i had trouble myself even picking out 48 and then a 32 so when i mentioned i was going to do a seinfeld bracket people started saying you know they were interested in it so i was like i'll form a i was going to form a committee and started off at like you know me and my friend mike gavin who does the who designs all the brackets and a few other guys and next thing you know, people were asking, so it turned out to be like seventeen people. I want I wanted an odd number in case there was like a vote. Like we had one vote, for example. My first thought was to do like pick sixty three for the bracket and then just do one do one fan vote in on the very first episode versus the finale. But looking through the um looking through all the great episodes, I, I, I personally didn't think that was fair to the other episode. So I had asked the committee, like, you know, should we do that? And nine of them, including me, said no and eight said yes. So that's why you needed the seventeen or odd number. So we didn't put those in because, you know, the finale is not that bad. People, I think it's not as bad as people think, but I don't like the first episode at all. I'm not saying the pilot because that's the, uh, that's the name of the season four finale. So that's why I'm avoiding saying the word pilot. (laughs) But um, as far as the committee, I asked them to uh, try to figure out a way, like, what's the best way? Because, you know, my top 10 or my top 20 could be totally different from yours and you could be just as big of a fan. But I feel like there's certain episodes that, like, have to be, like, The Contest, The Marine Biologist, The Opposite, Suit Nazi. Like, certain episodes, those are the four one-seats. Con- yeah, so, like those yeah. episodes have to be yep. either ones or twos, you know. Those are just so—such well-known episodes and just so well done. So I asked them to, you know, rank rank your top 48 from 1 to 48, then your next 32 from 49 to 80. And what I did was, after each person sent me my list, my wife Bettina and I, we went through each person's uh, picks, and, like, I put, like, a number— so like let's say you had the contest at at number two. So I put like you know a two, and then the next person the four slash four, and like you know like I think only six episodes had all seventeen votes, including the contest and marine biologist. And then I just basically went down to see how many which episode had how many votes, and then we like did the average. So like the uh, contest had all seventeen, and the average was like amazing, like two point six, and the marine biologist was all seventeen. And the average ranking was like 4, 4.5. So that's how we decided the seedings, based on that. And then toward the end, there were like a couple that were like really tight, like the uh, the pick and the conversion. Like they both had the same, almost the exact same number. But we you know, Mike and I gave the uh, edge to the pick because it has the uh, extra storylines with the lane and the uh, crazy Christmas card. But that's basically how it went. We just, you know, episode by episode and whichever episode's got the most votes. So getting to me, getting the top 48 was important. And then to try to get as many episodes in as possible. Then I added 16 playing matchups. And then even then, when I was doing it, I was like, there's just too many episodes. So I did 15. So that's 15 playing matchups. is 30 more episodes. That's 78. And then two, which is going on right now, two fan vote and polls. So eight more episodes. So we got 80, 86 out of 168, which I think is a good number. And then let the fans decide on the last uh, 16 spots.
0: Yeah, I mean, to show you how hard it is and how different opinions can be, the cigar store Indians, one of my top twenty probably, and it's in that battling for its life in that uh, last group in thing you just mentioned. So, um, yeah. yeah, it's amazing because when I was first, I think we were talking about it on Twitter, and I mentioned you like that, and you're like, oh yeah, it's wasn't in my list, and I'm like thinking like, wow, you know, it's not even in his top fifty, and then you know, then I started more thinking about, well, there is a hundred and sixty whatever of them, and so you kind of, I kind of understood the gravity. Here's what I'm wondering. Are you worried that people aren't going to know exactly what they're voting for by the names of the that's episodes a, at all?
3: That's a great question. Um, that's one of the issues, like some some of the episodes, like um, The Doorman. Someone last night said, the bro didn't make the list. You know, the bro, the man's ear with Frank Costanza and the bra. Yep. I said, no, that's The Doorman. So some episodes do have bad titles. Like The Mom and Pop Store should be called The John Voight Car. The, uh, sure. The one we just talked about should be called the bro, or the man's ear. The the, the the episode, the pool guy, it should be called the movie phone. You know, when Kramer's the movie phone guy, that, that didn't make the cut. The episode, the package, when George does that photo shoot with his, like, uh, in his underwear with Kramer, that should be called, like, the George photo shoot or something like that. So, like, some of these episodes do not have the best titles. So, that, they do suffer from that. But I think one way of getting around that is when I post the polls, I'll put, like, um you know when you, you know, when you're on Twitter, there's an actual tweet. And then there's the actual poll. So the poll will sure. still say, like, you know, the poll will still say the mom and pop store versus the caddy or whatever it is. But I'll say, like, in the above tweet, you know, round one, the mom and pop store in parentheses, AKA the John Voight car versus the caddy, AKA the uh, brawless wonder, Sue Ellen Mischke. I- I'll try to, like, let people know. I feel like some episodes don't need that, obviously, like the Junior Mint, the Puffy right. Shirt, Super yep. Nazi, Marine Biologist, but some, but some do. And I think that, uh, I think it's fair to give the give the you know voters i think the the huge seinfeld fans won't need that but the average casual fan who's only seen like you know half the episodes or a few here and there they might need that so i don't, I don't think it hurts or diminishes anything did you reveal your
0: final four or no?
3: well i haven't the bracket isn't fully set yet because the uh oh that's the right 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 although I
0: mean, the, 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 it would affect it is there one that
3: might no be no now? no i mean the thing is uh my original thought was to have like I felt like if you win a fan voting poll, you should be rewarded and like get like one of the um higher spots, like you know, eight nine matchup or seven ten, but then going through these episodes it just didn't feel right. So the winners of these sixteen voting polls will just be the remaining thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, because the one to twelve are already set. But uh I mean the opposite was always was my dad's favorite episode and one of my top five. So that would probably make my final four. I watched the Marine Biologist last night for like the hundredth time, it's just to me it's like the perfect episode of Seinfeld it's just george is amazing and just, it's like not one second is wasted and i think
0: oh kramer's that, physical that, that comedy pro- in
3: that yeah it's excellent that probably be my winner but uh i think there could be some uh lower seeds that could make around like the calzone is a six seed i thought that should have been higher i like the airport a lot which is uh somehow was only a, in the committee only had it as like an eight or nine a nine seed i thought that was gonna be a four seed uh, i like the bizarro jerry a lot which is a 10 seed i haven't really gone over the list yet but uh I just you know I just don't want four one seeds. I, I think uh, I think like a couple of ones could be in trouble. I think the soup Nazi might be in trouble uh, maybe early on, but uh, we'll see.
0: Kramer getting the sand in his eye and falling on the table, and the ring <laughs> biologist is one of my favorite <laughs> moments of the entire series of Seinfeld. Yeah, um,
3: that's great. I love the uh, when yeah. George is on the beach and, and I, I've done the I've done the photo on Twitter before, like standing by the water. I love, that. I love to make fun of that episode. He's walking with his, girl, his dream girl and right. Jerry told her this ridiculous lie and all of a sudden, like, is anyone here a marine biologist? I mean, it's so stupid, but it's so funny. Yeah,
0: He's on the Galapagos Islands with the turtles all of a sudden. <laughs> with on the, the turtles, exactly. yeah. um, This is awesome. I'm looking forward to it. You can find all this stuff, which we should let people know where to go, on Joe's Twitter feed. It's at Joe underscore M-A-N-N i e l l o and you can vote there there's voting going on now for the uh vote for the cigar store indian if you can um and (laughs) and then there's uh going to be the voting for the filling out the bracket uh and then also you got to finish off the uh solo songs of the beatles that's going on right now too i think you're down to eight or so on that
3: yeah the final final four tonight it's going to be a All, all the top four seeds again, the, the one, two, three, four. Ima- Imagine versus Band on the Run and um, My Sweet Lord versus Maybe I'm Amazed. So, two Paul songs, a John and a George. I was hoping Ringo could get in there, but it don't come easy. To didn't make it. So.
0: Just as long as Imagine doesn't win, it should have been gone. Yeah, I know you don't like again. it. I mean, it's funny, <laughs> it's funny
3: you say that. Like, I mean, I, I love the song, but it's not my favorite. But the thing is, like, one of the reasons why I was already thinking about doing the Beatles solo bracket, and then a few friends were like, it's going to win in the landslide. My friend Jeff was like, you know it's going to win in a landslide. and I was like, I'm not so sure. Like, I, I, I love My Sweet Lord personally, and like I know a lot of people love the Paul song. So I think Imagine is obviously the favorite because it's so popular and iconic. But I would not be shocked if it, if it lost to My Sweet Lord in the final or even one of the Paul songs. So I, I hope for a close matchup. We can only hope. All right, I'll get you out of
0: here on this. I wanted to talk a little bit about headlines, but time got away from us. We can do that next time. Uh, I'll have you back. Oh, real quickly, what are some other ones you got? Uh, percolating. What are some uh, future brackets you're hoping for? Oh, some
3: brackets. Well, I'm not gonna uh,
0: probably gonna do secret? one for a couple months
3: because it's, it's a lot of work. It's fun. What you say? Bob. Is Seger? it top
0: secret or can you reveal? It oh, doesn't even necessarily to need Bob... to be the next one. Do you have any other ideas? Ones you'd like to do in the future?
3: I thought you said Bob Secret. Um, yeah, that be Well, I mean, one. I had an idea. Yeah. I had an idea for like a um, someone actually someone who followed the Beatles bracket. Some guy said, uh, Sky Parker. He loved it so much. He he put a Rolling Stones one together." on his own and then i said to him you're gonna do the polls and at first he was hesitant but then he did it and gimme shelter beat uh forgot the other one to beat um barely oh uh, sympathy, for the, sympathy for the devil but uh i was thinking of doing like a uh like a four group kind of thing like music like 16 songs from zeppelin
2: okay. 16
3: songs from rolling stones 16 sure. from uh who and pink floyd but i don't know it might be too difficult and then someone had uh, a few people had suggested one hit wonders which i really like it's a great idea but like just thinking about it, like like for example, like "Take on Me" by Aha to me would be like one of the favorites. And someone was like, it had a second number, had like a second top forty hit that I for- totally forgot about. So I feel like if you yeah. did that, it'd be so much like it'd be like too much work for like you know just like going through every song. And I'm not really sure. Uh, as far as the uh, next bracket, I don't, I don't really know. Another guy had a great idea, just like a but it's it's kind of just New York Central. It would just be um greatest New York athlete. I thought that was a good idea, but uh. Love well, it. That- I feel like that would, you know, only be only one target audience. So I don't know, maybe I'll do something sports. but I feel like I did too. Did, done a lot of music and, uh, you know, TV show once. Maybe I'll do a, a, a sports, a sports one, but I was also thinking maybe like next year's Oscars to do like a, uh, bracket on best pictures, 64 best, best pictures. And have like people that. vote on that. I think yeah. that would, that'd be kind of fun, but, uh, there's that lots might of different be, ideas. But. That,
0: that might be wide open, too. I don't know that you for sure yeah. get a one seed that wins that. That might be a little bit more I wrong. mean, maybe, maybe uh, Godfather, Godfather. Or Casablanca. Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah. One of those episodes. But, you know, you never know. Yeah. But uh, there's, there's so many options. I, I like the idea of the 32 ones, too, because, you know, some of them, you know, like for the Beatles solo years, like I didn't feel it was necessary to do 64 because you knew you were going to get basically the same 32 or final 16. So why, why even have the two first rounds, you know? Sure.
0: All right, now I'll get you out of here on this. I do this with almost every um, Long Island guy I have. All right, I'm going to give you, let's do five Long Island natives, and you rank them for me. You ready? Okay. All right, Howard Stern, Billy Joel, Mariah Carey. Um, who, bagel was? <laughs> was it, who, who did you say? The Bagel Bus guy. The ba- sure, we'll put the Bagel boss guy in <laughs> no, there. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, you know what? He would be too easy of a five seed. What did I say already? Uh, um, Howard Stern, Howard Stern, Billy Joel, Billy Joel, Mariah Carey, uh, Eddie Murphy, and uh, how about? Let's see. Let me think of a sports guy. Uh, help me out. Give me an athlete from uh, Long Island. I can think of a bunch of hockey players, but I'm not positive. You're gonna. I mean,
3: there's so many. I'd rather you pick it. All right,
0: Adam Fox.
3: Adam
0: Fox. Yeah, he plays for, the rain, plays for the Rangers right now.
3: Oh, I'm not familiar with him. I'm not a big hockey guy.
0: Okay. Well, he's fifth, uh, then. Well,
3: this is based on what? Just like uh, I just picked them or? out of the...
0: Yeah, rank them any way you want. I just picked five Long Island people well, okay. out of uh, my head, and you get to I mean, rank in the power rankings.
3: I think I think Adam Fox, no disrespect to Adam Fox. I think he's obviously the five seed. Um, I didn't realize that Eddie Murphy was from Long Island. I think I forgot that. Uh, he's also from the like same Billy place Charlie. Howard is let's see uh he grew up
0: where same place howard did um
3: oh did you really roosevelt roosevelt yep yeah um i mean i love i love mariah carey i mean you know i'm a huge fan but you know i love most of her hits she's a great voice but with the other three guys i gotta put her put her in that fourth spot sorry mariah and uh then you got howard stern billy joel eddie murphy i'm all three are great easily all three that could be number one but uh i'm a big howard stern fan so i'll go with uh Eddie Murphy at three, and then you know, I did the Billy Joel bracket. To me, Billy Joel, he's is Long Island, so he's got to go one. Billy Joel one, Howard Stern two, Eddie Murphy three, Mariah Carey four, and Adam Fox five. Adam Fox is going to win multiple Norris
0: trophies in his career in the NHL. Um, oh, maybe, maybe maybe he can get bumped off Mariah Carey at four. All right, Joe, I love this. <laughs> Thank you for all the time. I'll be playing. All right, Steve, it was fun. Thank I'll, you. Yep, I'll be playing along, and uh, good luck. I, I just want to send one more time well wishes and best luck and prayers to the great cigar store Indian that it can pull through uh, (laughs) and make it to the big. I also,
3: I also was thinking it was a, a little controversial you know the name of the, t- the name of the episode so I was wondering if I should even put it in nowadays with the whole you know name changes of sports well I watched it the obviously. other night
0: I watched it the other night and I was just thinking man this would I don't think this episode would fly in 2020 I don't know yeah I agree yeah. I agree
3: that's why I was a little <laughs> hesitant but uh, I, don't, I don't think it's going to make it past this round so yeah. enjoy these final moments with it <laughs> <laughs> alright thanks Joe alright Steve thanks so much it was fun thank you <music>
0: could have use a few pounds tight
1: pants points hollering out she was a black hat beauty with big dark eyes and points all her own sudden way up high
0: all right i want to thank joe maniello for making the debut today on the podcast appreciate that looking forward to the seinfeld bracket I think I'm boring there. I think my uh, I think my favorite episode is also the marine biologist, and I am in in sense part of the problem. Uh, the top dogs just always win these brackets. Now I think a lot of times I would not. My favorite is usually not the consensus, but in the case of Seinfeld, it might be. I've been rewatching some Seinfelds. I started. When I started preparing for this interview, I've been thinking about it more, and I hadn't watched them in a while, uh, so I've been doing that. I've been watching Cheers, Seinfeld, I've been watching Americans again, and finishing my Sopranos rewatch, which I started at the beginning of this quarantine. I, I bounce around, I watch a f- you know for a few days, and then I go on to the next one. All right, in a second, we're going to... Finish off Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask. John Pessa wrote this book. He also wrote a book that was a uh, part of the book club five years ago called The Game. And he's back with this one. We do about an hour with John, who's very passionate about this project. Uh, so I think you'll enjoy it. One book left right now in the book club. We kind of filled it up for the summer. And now we've emptied it out and we'll have to load it back up again for the fall. Uh, but it's called Total Fucking Godhead, the Biography of Chris Cornell. Uh, this is by a guy named Corbin Reef. And now that I've finished the Yogi book, it's time for me to move my attention to this uh, and read about Chris Cornell. Who it's really been sad in his death. Kind of the division that's been created between his wife, Tony and the rest of the guys in Soundgarden. And kind of their inability to get along, which the consensus seems to put the blame on Tony in that, has prevented us from hearing what might be a Soundgarden album or two that they kind of had in the coffers. But hopefully there will be more about that in the book, and I look forward to reading about his life. We did a Soundgarden book last year by Greg Prado, Uh, this one of course more about cornell so i'm excited to read about his other works too audio slave and temple of the dog his solo work uh so it's chris cornell season here on the sportscasters and there is nothing wrong with that all right let's take a break we will be right back with john Pessa. Our second guest today is a graduate of Maryland. Uh, He's had a long career in media, including time at ESPN the Magazine. He's the author of a former book club book of the month called The Game, and he's back to talk about his book about the great Yogi Berra, a warm sportscaster's welcome to John Pessa. Hey, John, how are you doing tonight?
1: Good, Steve. How are you?
0: So I was getting ready for this today, and I noticed in my the social media history, which is somehow tracked by an app, that we recorded our interview for the game five years ago today. Wow. And a twist. That's, uh, yeah. that, that's
1: pretty coincidental.
0: Yeah, crazy. And it's crazy that the game was five years ago. I mean, I don't feel like it was that long ago, but I guess we blinked. Yeah, and...
1: five years, five years since ago by pretty fast. And most of the five years since the game has been spent um, studying and writing about Yogi Berra. Yeah, that was going to be my
0: first question. How quickly did you move on to Yogi, and and how quickly did you know that that's what you wanted to do next?
1: Well, actually, uh, it it was it was fairly quick. Um, I will I will have to add though that I that I sent um, the owners and and Mister Manford a thank you note to for making the game relevant again um, because yeah. of the just the completely botched. Way that they that yeah, they handle the whole labor situation, uh-huh. which unfortunately I think is a sneak preview of what we're going to look at at you know in in the uh, at the end of two thousand and twenty one going into twenty two and we may you know if if we have a twenty two season that's not interrupted by a lockout or a or a strike I'll be one very very surprised baseball observer,
0: yeah, it'd be a miracle,
1: yeah, but to answer your question um actually the book I was going to do uh that I had um in mind to do next was uh, Dean Smith, and uh, the famous baseball uh, best basketball coach at uh, University of North Carolina, who's famous for being the only man who ever kept Michael Jordan under 20 points a game. <laughs> and I I was uh, I was gonna do that. And we had already um, sold the the the, uh, the the book proposal, and I decided that I, I knew if I did that that I was going to end up doing a lot on the NCAA, and I think the NCAA should be burned to the ground. It's a terrible institution. Sure. And having already tackled a, a rather significant large um, institution in in the. Um, uh, in, in the in, game MLP yep. um, I decided that I didn't want to go do that kind of book again and I wanted to do something that was a little more fun and the first um, and I love baseball and I want to kind of want to stay in baseball anyway and the first as soon as I that, that kind of clicked over my head the first idea I had was, was yogi and what was interesting was my publisher also had the same idea and uh while they you know were happy for me to do um Dean Smith they had Yogi at the top of their list and so it was um it it, it, it was a uh, pretty quick decision and i started it just a couple of months after i finished uh doing the game
0: all right so i have a real quick nca hate story for you and then uh, I had another follow up question on deciding on Yogi. My brother played Division One hockey at Yale, and um, it was an amazing, amazing thing to happen in his life and my family's life. And, I mean, you know, we're a middle class family in Buffalo. We're not rich elite people. And for him to be able to go to Yale and, you know, win a national championship actually in hockey there, and, I mean, an amazing thing. But in 2015, he was a senior, and they played their last game in the NCAA tournament. Um, his last game was in the NCAA tournament against uh, BU. And, um, BU won the game in overtime, three to two. So my brother goes into the locker room, you know, he's upset his career's over. Essentially. He had just come back from a broken leg and he knew, you know, this was going to be it. And he's going to move on and use his degree and not his skates. And, um, he's sitting in the locker room and the coach, you know, thanking them, the seniors, the team. And within 30 seconds, he gets a tap on the shoulder that he needs to provide a urine sample for the NCAA. He was randomly, um, selected to do that. And, um, he went to give the urine sample, and his urine was dil- uh, diluted because he had just played the game. Uh, right. And they kept him in a closet in his soaked Under Armour You know that was under his uniform. So he didn't have right. a chance to shower or change. And he had to stay in there for almost five hours um, until he could provide what they deemed acceptable uh, urine. And uh, he was in there so long, you know, we weren't allowed to see him. So we couldn't, you know, give him a hug after the last game of his career, uh, right? And um, he missed the bus. He had a, the, the assistant AD had to drive him to the bus, and um, whatever. I mean, it's a pointless story. Maybe you just you got me fired up about it when you were talking about uh, yeah,
1: yeah. Well, the NCAA, we had we once had um, Jeremy Bloom, um, whose sister was a subject of a, of a, a movie, with Jessica Chastain, um, uh, Molly's Game. Um, but Jeremy Bloom was was a two-time Olympic uh, champion skier, and he was also a terrific uh, football player, got drafted on the sixth round by the Denver Broncos. He was out of Colorado. And um, while he was in, um, he came to speak to us at uh, ESPN Magazine. While he was in college, he, would, uh, he had offers from any number of ski equipment uh, people to um, endorse and advertise their the ski um, equipment, and the NCAA would not allow him to do it, had n- and said if you do that you can't play football. What does football have to do with skiing?
2: Right.
0: Yeah, that's something that's thankfully changing now. It seems like
1: it's just starting to change. Yeah,
0: just starting and, now. Yeah.
1: Right. And it's got a long it's got a long way to go, and you know for the for the coaches to make. Like, Mike Krzyzewski makes well more than a million dollars a year from Nike. It's probably closer to $2 million a year sure. to endorse their sneakers. He doesn't play the game. You know, his players get nothing for wearing those sneakers. How in the world is that there?
0: Well, they don't get money. I'm not going to – I won't say they don't get nothing. I mean, you know, again, I had a brother who was a Division One athlete, and he got a lot from the – you know, from – just because he was an athlete. I mean – he would have went to community college or had to have two hundred thousand dollars in loans. True, they you know got a the chance
1: to go to, to Duke and yeah. get an education, and but and there know, is the a lot of is... there is
0: a lot of perks to being a Duke basketball player too.
1: No question. Yeah. Um, so I won't say it, nothing,
0: but I get the point anyway. Like let's not you, argue, let's not argue about your, something we you, agree on. You know what I mean? Like yeah. You
1: blow out your knee playing right. basketball. Well, my brother broke
0: his leg. Yeah. So I, yeah, I understand that part too. You know what I mean? Like. You know, my brother thought he was going to play pro hockey right up until the minute he broke his leg in a college hockey game.
1: You know, right. but... And by the way, most people don't know that college that, that, uh, uh, scholarships are one-year renewables. So if they decide they don't, you know, if, if a new coach came to, to uh, Yale and didn't like your brother, didn't think he was his kind of player and wanted to put a system in and, and your brother didn't fit that system, he didn't have to give him. He didn't have to renew his scholarship.
0: Right. Well, that's not exactly true at Yale because they don't get athletic scholarships. Well, but, that's true. Right. But your Sorry. point is. You, but you're absolutely right about you know about that at, and with the athletic scholarship, that's definitely a flaw. Um, and actually, when he was being recruited, um, Boston College only offered him three out of four years to start. You know, they weren't even going to offer four years. They told him straight out that the first year. Would have to that's a big reason you didn't go there. But again, no. like we agree in general. And now like you, and now you know why
1: I didn't want to do the I the, do, the yeah. mystery, which is probably the one I'll do next, right? Um, because so, I just didn't want to get you know get mired in this in this whole thing.
0: So next time you're on, we can talk all about this NCAA stuff because that'll be fun to do. There you go. I'll have a good perspective, and you'll have a lot more research, and we'll have fun with that next time. um Let me ask you about the yogi thing. Is so um, within the last year, Jing. Jane uh, Levy was on the, Levy was on the show to talk about her book about Babe, and she also did the mantle book. She was on for that, and uh, it just gets me to thinking. And we and her and I talked about this about when you go to a Yankee, um, especially from from this era, really any era. You know, there's a lot out there. You know, there's a lot on mantle. You know, there's a ton on Ruth, obviously. You know, DiMaggio. Uh, you know, Barra. He's in that pantheon of like great Yankees so my question to you is when you got started with this how much did you find about Bera and how tricky was it in your mind to say how can I dif- differentiate my work and you know make it relevant it, it, did you feel were you nervous at all about tackling a topic that was flushed out or what, what was it like when you started to figure out what's out there on Barra?
3: well um
1: there, there were two things. Uh, one, I mean, this is—I've done this for 46 years. This is my 46 years as a sports journalist, and and about 20 plus of those years, I was a sports editor. Um, ran, and then not counting the time I I run the investigative team at at ESPN Magazine, and so I'm pretty confident that at, at there's always more to a story than what's out there, even something that is covered extensively as yogi was covered
2: sure um
1: so i i wasn't that concerned that i wasn't going to find fresh material um nor was i that concerned that i was going to be able to find um new information on on the same stories that have been told so many times and for instance the perfect game in 1956 there were two terrific stories about the night that i didn't know un- until i started reporting it uh, one, one of which was he was, Yogi um, got, you know, Branch Rickey, and this, this is something I also didn't know. Branch Rickey had the chance to sign Yogi um, when he was 17 years old. Uh, Red yeah, Shandians 250
0: started. buck difference, right? Oh, I have yep. that in my notes. That blew my mind. He missed him on 250 bucks.
1: Right. Yeah. So this is something that I hadn't, that I, that, that I had no idea had happened. And, and Red Dean's told me this terrific story, Dean's being the the Hall of Fame uh, second baseman for the Cardinals and the Pirates. And we, we were sitting, he was a special, um, special assistant coach for the, um, for the uh, Cardinals. And we we're sitting in the bowels of, of Bush stadium um, and uh, before one game, and he's got to be about 93 at the time. And he, and he, and, but his memory was just crystal clear. He said, they used to have um, these um, open tryouts. They would put an ad in the paper and said, if you want to play for the St. Louis Cardinals, come to Sportsman Park on July 14th. And so Red come, is, is from across the river in Illinois, and he literally takes a milk truck. You know, he has no money at all. And he just hitches a ride, gets into town, and there are literally thousands of kids trying out. This is 1941. Uh, trying out for the, uh, for the, Yang- for the Cardinals. And um, so Ricky and the and scouts um, chop it into, into, into the out-of-town kids and the in-town kids. And long story short, it ends up being eight kids who, uh, that they narrow it down to. Red didn't remember the, uh, the other five, but the three he remembered was himself, Yogi Berra, who then was Larry Berra, and Joe Garagiola, who lived across the street from, from Yogi from the time Joe was four and Yogi was five.
0: And that's who they and, signed, right? Excuse me. Joe is the one they ended up signing, right?
1: And so they they watch and they you know, they, they watch the all eight players sure. and it ends up being Shane Dean's is the one who pitches to Yogi. And and he says, he told me he says, I never heard the ball hit the bat so hard in my life before or since. He said, best hitter I ever saw. And but Yogi didn't look like a like a baseball player. Yogi didn't look like an athlete. I mean, he had stubby legs. He had the torso of a taller person. He had long arms. He had thick shoulders, couldn't see his neck, big head. I mean, he just didn't look like, a, like, a, like a, an athlete, much like a baseball player. And, and Ricky, who was acknowledged as the greatest talent um, scout ever, the thing that that really differentiated was that he could look at someone when they were 16 years old and project what they would be like as a as an adult, and which is you know I mean how many how many number one picks in you know how many first round baseball picks never make it mm. you know it's mm-hmm. a really hard thing to do, so he ends up picking um, Red and he ends up picking Garagiola and he gives Garagiola a $500 um, bonus to sign. And Garjo is all sixteen years old and he he doesn't really think that Barra is, is a player. The scouts, you know, kinda of lean on him and he offers Yogi two hundred and fifty dollars and Yogi's father didn't want him to play and he knew if he came back and told him he got less than Joe that he wouldn't let him take it. And and he he asked Ricky what the problem was and Ricky told him to his face, he goes, Son, I'm saying this for your own good I don't think you're more than a triple A baseball player and we're looking for kids who can go all the way. Mm. And you know, people didn't uh, Ricky didn't make a lot of mistakes, that was a big one.
0: Right. And, well, hey, at least he you know, signed Jackie Robinson, so we'll give him that, you know, but <laughs> we'll give him No, yeah. he did a lot of great yeah, things. Yeah, 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 bomb, for sure.
1: Bomb system, but he missed on this
0: he one. He missed on that one. So, yeah.
1: you know, that was like that was kind of, you know, that was one of the stories that I had never heard before. Um, and in and in, in 56 so Yogi ends up going to, plays American Legion ball for two seasons. Um, Stockham post 245 in St. Louis. And they go to the finals, uh, two years in a row. Yogi is, is, is the star player. And, and he's, uh, really loyal. I mean, one of, the, one of Yogi's traits is, is he's very, very loyal. And in 1956, um, the, the Stockham team wins the national title and they're, um, they're, uh, um, one of the things that they got for winning was they got to go to the world series that season uh for three uh, for the for the first three games and uh, so they they go and, it, and 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 there was a rain out and the day they the day that they were able to go into the locker room and they, all the St. Louis kids of course flutter around Yogi and they're talking to Yogi and and Yogi points across the the, the uh locker room and he goes see that tall gangly guy over there he goes he changed his, his wind-up at the end of the season. He's going to do something really special. And that was Don Larson. And it turned out he did something really, really special in that World Series. But Yogi almost didn't play in that World Series. Um, Yogi's mom, who was very, very close to, who's the youngest of four Italian to, to Italian sons, he was the baby of the family, even though he had a younger sister, Yogi was the baby of the family, and uh, very close to his mom, and his mom had diabetes, and she had already lost her sight, and in 1956, she goes into a hospital two days before the 1956 World Series to have her leg amputated to save her life, and Yogi gets on the phone with his, with his, with his father um, a couple of days before the, before the operation, says, Pop, I got to come home. And he goes, I, I can't, I, you know, mom's going to the hospital. She might not make it. I got to go home. And, and his father said, uh, listen, you know, your mom wants you to play. So you play, she's going to be okay. Everyone's going to be here. Don't worry about it. Come afterwards. He goes, and they get into a little argument. And his father finally says, look, you're playing stay. So these are the kind of things that I never heard of. So I, so to answer your question, Sure. Yeah, I knew it was going to be a challenge, and certainly there was there was going to be, uh, you know, when you pick to do something on someone who's 90 years old, whose career ended in 1963, finding people who were his contemporaries wasn't the easiest thing, but... You know, I spent four and a half years and interviewed 150 people for this book, and I found teammates and I found people in his neighborhood who grew up with him and told me stories about what it was like growing up with Yogi and what it was like growing up in the Depression. Um, You know, you talk about uh, The Game, you know, The Game was was a a book that covered um, 1990 to 2005. And, you know, I was a journalist during that time. And I knew, you know, I covered that story, um, trying to, to learn what, you know, what life was like in 1925 when Yogi was born, you know, through the depression that he lived through, you know, volunteering for a secret mission, um, which turns out to be, you know, manning the first, the very first boats that, uh, that, that, um, uh, reached the beach in in Normandy um for during uh you know uh D-Day things like that um were all things that I I had no idea that he did I th- and and th- one if I can add one other sure. thing one of the things that as I started just kind of exploring doing the you know doing the book I mean I was already committed but just at the very early on in in the in the reporting one of the things that became really really obvious to me was that there was a caricature of Yogi that people knew. The
0: quotes. They knew so. the
1: yogiism. Yeah. They knew the guy on the Affleck Duck commercial, you know, and other commercials that he did. They knew he won ten World Series. And they didn't know much more. And and especially people, you know, fifty and under hardly knew anything about him. And it's like, well, how can that be? So much has been written about him. But I'm telling you, and especially I've done, I've done a lot of interviews now. The book came out you know, um, April 14th. And uh, the younger the, the person who interviews me, the more they didn't know and don't know about Yogi. So I guess that's a long-winded answer to the very short question is, no, were you worried?
0: It's great. And I can tell you that I knew almost none of this. You know, going through the book. I mean, I had no idea he was a Purple Heart winner, for example. You know, right? Had no idea. I didn't know that either. Yeah, had no idea the Cardinals. Basically, if they had offered him two hundred and fifty more dollars, could have had him. You know, Um, I I can go on and on, and we'll go through.
1: I'll tell you a story. My brother-in-law is a is a huge Orioles fan. And every time I tell this story, um, he cringes um, because the other team in St. Louis was the St. Louis Browns, and they in their and they were uh, a terrible team and terrible, terribly run franchise. And in in their uh, in their uh, wisdom, decided that if Branch Rickey didn't think Yogi Berra was a uh, a good player, even though all their scouts begged them to sign him. Uh, they decided not to offer him any money. They said, "Yeah, we'll sign you, but we're not offering you any bonus money at all," and which didn't fly. Whoops. Well, in 1954, that the the um, St. Louis Browns become the Baltimore Orioles. 1954, Yogi won the second of his three MVPs, and the, the Orioles would have gotten Yogi would have had um, Yogi Berra as their in his prime as their catcher.
2: <laughs>
1: whoops that really makes people yeah. when i tell a story yeah. to the audiences in in baltimore that really makes them so so happy
0: yeah that, that hurts and and the, the i was talking to, this will be more for your for your brother-in-law i was talking to jeff passing last week and i said you know it's a 60 game season potentially like you know could a team like the orioles like Fluke into the playoffs. He's like, well, I think twenty five teams could make the playoffs, but the Orioles right. are not on that <laughs> list. <laughs> so, no. It's amazing. I mean,
1: I'm a Yankee fan, and 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 honestly, I really enjoyed the Yankee um, uh, Orioles rivalry. I was there in that game, the Derek Jeter game, right when yeah, you know, and, and when Bernie hit Bernie hits the home run in extra innings. And, uh, you know, they had a a great robbery, and my wife is from Baltimore, so, you know, that half of their family are Orioles fans, and it was great. And now they're just so awful that it's, I mean, it's like watching a AAA team.
0: And they were in the playoffs, I mean. While you were doing this book, I mean, it hasn't been that long. They've got, they went so bad so quickly,
1: so fast. Yeah, I mean, it's really astonishing how how quick and like my my will say, hey, you know what? We're undefeated. I uh, I'm not minding that there's no season right now. We're in first place. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and hey, if they go, you know, five and three in the first eight games or something,
1: that'll be a high watermark yeah. for them. Probably the Oriole
0: Fever going going go crazy. Uh, now,
1: you know, there was a day, there was a time when you could not, when Camden Yards opened up, I had to go through the American League office to get a ticket.
2: Yeah, beautiful. beautiful I was down so, yeah. there to
1: visit. That It was such a hot ticket that you couldn't, you couldn't get into Oriole games <laughs> at all, any game, much less a Yankee-Oriole game. And now they, 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 now they have a hard time giving away tickets.
0: And I think it's a little bit forgotten at this point, too, that that stadium changed the game. You it know, yeah, yeah, like people forget what baseball stadiums look like. You know, the multi-use buildings. And oh the- my God!
1: The, the the hottest day I've ever spent in my life was was the I think it was like the fourth game, fifth game of the season. Um I had to be a little late in that. But Don Baylor was the was the first coach of the Rockies, and Don Baylor and and my best friends uh, were very very close. Late Don Baylor, and he gave us tickets. Um, right behind the third base uh, dugout in, in Philadelphia. Well, the Philadelphia was one of the multi-purpose stadiums you're talking about. You know, just a, a round, yeah, cutout yeah. stadium. And the, so the, the, the box seats were on aluminum risers. And it was about a 95, 96-degree day in Philadelphia. There was no, no stadiums. There was never any breeze because of the way the stadium was built. And, and, and it was AstroTurf. So I, I can't imagine how the outfielders even stood out there. And cause you could see the heat rising off and you know it was a day game and it was, and it was just, it, it had to be 120 degrees sitting there on those aluminum seats. Uh-huh. I felt bad for the, for the women. Cause me and my two boys, we just stripped down to our shorts and kept, and kept pouring ice water over our heads. We made it to the seventh inning wow. and that was all. And then we finally said, you know, we can't, we can't take this. I mean, you know, we're starting to pet, and especially the women. You know, it's like like we're out of here. We're done.
0: Well, I think uh, the Sky Dome was the only new stadium in the eighties at all right. that, that came about, and then Tropicana Field and
1: Oh my God, what an awful place! Right,
0: and Comiskey were the last two new Comiskey, I guess whatever yeah. it's called now, were the last two to open before the breakthrough of Camden Yards and Like, if you just look at all the stadiums that came after it, it's like, you know, it really just changed the game and for the better, obviously, because there's so many beautiful ballparks now that are a direct benefit of the breakthrough that was Camden Yard. You
1: got to give Larry Lucchino, who really kind of oversaw the building of that stadium, so much credit for that. Um, he really, because they, they had actually, the first time they, they turned in a, uh, the design for that stadium, it was basically your typical stadium. There was nothing special. And he goes, no, no, I really want something that evokes the memory of days gone by. I want this to be a jewel. I want this to, to feel nostalgic when you walk in. And boy, do you ever at that stadium. It's still a beautiful stadium.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a Hall of Fame-worthy contribution to baseball in my mind. It really it, is. It, I mean, it really is. I don't think we're overstating it. Let's get back to Yogi a little bit as we drifted off him. And you were talking kind of about the character that he kind of became, you know, the goofy quotes and the commercials and his kind of impact on pop culture and, you know, who he became to the general public. Um how did he feel about that? Do you think? Like, do you get a sense of what he, how he perceived, how he was perceived?
1: Well, I mean, he he certainly knew his his value as both a baseball player. He was one of the first players to 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 hold out, and he and he held out twice until the Yankees finally realized that if they didn't pay Yogi what he thought he was worth, they were going to be missing their catcher um, in spring training every year. And, um, and, he, and he knew his, his value uh, once, you know, once endorsements became big. But really, Yogi was one of the, um, pre- one of the very first uh, players to realize that endorsements was a way to go. And, uh, you know, what happens is, I mean, Yogi's career, um, uh, he follows DiMaggio. And one of the things about the Yankees, and I'm, I've been a Yankee fan since I was four years old, and, you know, I, am a baby boomer. So I, I come of age, um, with Mickey Mantle and, you know, I, I get to know Yogi Berra as a, um, he's my favorite father's favorite player. But when I'm watching Yogi Berra, he was uh, primarily a, um, a platoon, uh, hard hitting platoon outfielder. Right. And one of the, one of the amazing things about Yogi, he was even into his thirties, he was a fast, he, a fast runner. I mean, you know, you didn't have to pinch hit. Right. Most Rare catches you have to pinch yep. hit for late in the game. Not Yogi. I mean, he was he was fast, and he almost became an outfielder. And we'll kind of come come back to that. And uh, you know, people think that the that the way the Yankee you know the, the arc of, of of the Yankee stars goes was it was Dimaggio to um, uh, to Mantle, and the reality is that it was Dimaggio. To 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 uh, Yogi Berra, who becomes the cleanup hitter, which was the glamour spot in in baseball then, and and then Mantle. And in fact, Yogi Berra is the was the best player on the best team in history, the 1949 Yankees to 1953. They won five consecutive World Series. Was never done before. Never done since. Probably will never ever be done. And the, and it was the end of Dimaggio's career. He had three. He played on three of those teams. Half year on in one of those years because he was hurt. His last year, he batted 263. So clearly, he's not the dominant Joe DiMaggio of his of of his, of the rest of his career. And Mantle comes up in 1951, and Mantle is striking out. You know, as much as he's hitting, and he's getting booed unmercifully by by the fans and he doesn't become Mickey Mantle really until 1955 56 and the guy who's the dominant player on this team is you know hitting 25 to 30 home runs every year knocking in 100 to 125 runs batting 280 to 320 and playing the most important position on the field and playing it um incredibly well and averaging 141 games a season is Yogi Berra so you know I kind of went into this thinking um, that the like most people that the Mount Rushmore of the Yankees is Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, and I came out of the reporting of this going okay. Even though Mickey was my favorite player growing up, that if 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 um, if Yogi doesn't you know push him off of Mount of the Yankee Mount Rushmore, then there's got to be five because Mantle mm-hmm. was as uh, Berra was as important to those. Uh, teams as anyone on on those teams. I mean, I mean he played 17 years and they won 14 pennants. And there were years there in, in that stretch that I was talking about where he caught 149 out of 154 games and 148 out of 154 games. He played in 20 to 22 doubleheaders a year. He played back to back doubleheaders in August and September. And, you know, when 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 the writers would ask Casey why he played Yogi so much, especially when the Yankees had um, quality backups, guys that they traded away who ended up becoming all-stars like Gus Triandos and Sherm Lalla, um, Casey would say, well, you know, when I play Mr. Barrett Catcher, we win World Series. And, you know, it's pretty hard to argue with that right, logic.
0: That works. So he's no worse than fifth, in your mind, in the Yankee... No
1: play. worse than fifth, and probably no worse than 4 and 4A four with, 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 uh, with Mickey. And who's but, you know, going back to about your, your question about pop culture... Sure. So his career tracks the rise of television. And, I mean, you know, in 1947, there's barely a TV in anyone's home. You know, by the early 1950s, there are 50 million televisions. And, you know, by the mid-50s, everyone's got a television. And... Uh, and now, so Yogi is first of all he's on TV all the time because the Yankees are on the game of the week all the time, and yeah, for seven to twelve days um, every fall he's on uh, in the World Series. And back then, the World Series was, was like a Super Bowl, but but you know four to seven times a week, um, you know, for, for the series. And he was on uh, all of the variety of shows, the like Jackie Gleason and the Milton Berle, and of course the Ed Sullivan Show. He was on all the game shows. He did commercials, everything from camel cigarettes to Puss in Boots, cat food. And Yogi was ubiquitous. There was pro- in the 1950s, there was probably no one as famous in, the, in America as, as Yogi Berra. And, you know, one of the things that, that happened was, I um, mean, Yogi, um, yes, Yogi would, you know, would 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 kind of turn a phrase every now and again and you know part of it was that he was bilingual and he spoke, you know, anyone who's uh, who who knows any of the romance languages like like Italian know that the syntax is off. So a lot of times, you know, words would be out of place or he would have a word that, you know, like Like after the 1960 World Series when when the Yankees outscored the the Pirates something like 95 to 42 and ended up losing in seven games. And Yogi was asked why they, uh, you know, how could they possibly have lost? And he said, well, we made too many wrong mistakes. You know, obviously he (laughs) they made too many mistakes that they came back and really bit them. Um, But, you know. They were they were pretty funny, and the Yankees came out of an era of the Joe DiMaggio era. Yogi, I mean Joe DiMaggio, was about as somber and as quiet as a person could be, and the Yankee clubhouse was just like Joe. And he was and surly,
0: this, right? He was kind of miserable, no? He
1: uh-huh. was a kind of surly, yeah. arrogant guy. Yeah. And and Yogi gave the writers something to write about, and you know, in the early going, you know, if somebody said something that sounded like Yogi said it then Yogi said it, and then they would print it. And he said, yeah, that sounds like something Yogi would say. Um, but, you know, he did say a lot of them. One of the interesting things, I mean, Yogi, there's theres eight quotes um, attributed to Yogi Berra in Bartlett's book of famous quotations, which is more than any United States president. Wow. This, this is a guy with an eighth grade education, <laughs> maybe. I mean, his friend said that, you know, it was really probably more like a, sixth grade education and yogi was yogi was even though so many people like branch ricky um and others told him he was never going to make it as a baseball player, yogi in his heart always knew he was going to be a baseball player and just didn't see the re- the purpose of staying in school and really during the depression you know by the time you made it you uh, know into to eighth grade you know reading if you could read if you could write if you could do basic arithmetic what else did you need to work in the factories You know, I mean, a lot of kids didn't, in fact, one of the reasons why American Legion ball became such the, uh, the dominant, uh, ball and why Yogi played American Legion ball was that high school, uh, during the depression, um, depression wiped out high school baseball. You know, there weren't, a lot of kids didn't last long enough to play baseball in high school. And if they were in high school that long, they didn't, you know, they had to go to work after, after school, they couldn't play, be playing baseball.
2: Sure.
0: Well, we know that Yogi didn't say a lot of those things he said, so
1: well that you know that's one of the one of the <laughs> best quotes was "I never said everything that I said
0: right <laughs> love that one yeah. um, the another really interesting part of the book and we're jumping around, but I mean we weren't going to be able to go through every story anyway that's in here, and that's why it's definitely worth uh the time and just to reset a little bit it's Yogi a life behind the mask John passes the author he's with us here going over some stuff so he gets fired pretty early i want to say 15 16 17 games into the year or something and steinbrenner doesn't tell him he sends a gm to tell him and that creates a cold war between yogi and the yankees for what 14 years
1: 14 years yeah that um, was i'll tell you what that was a t- that was a tough tough thing for yogi to to do um, I mean, you know, he had three managing stints. The first one, he ends up taking a broken down, really, and you could tell because uh, in 1964, a team of, of you know, he loses uh, Whitey Ford, who, who was hurt um, the, at the end of the season. Um, the team really is, is aging. Roger Maris is starting to, is, is breaking down, and and he takes him to the seventh game of the World Series against an excellent uh, Cardinals team, but Ralph Houck, um, who uh, who had won three pennants and two World Series and, and before moving up to GM was supposed to be a guy who who um, mentored Yogi as a as a manager that year. Instead, convinced the two owners of the Yankees to fire him, and he was fired in August. They just didn't tell him until after the season. Which really would have been interesting if he had won the World Series, what they would have done. And then he goes to the Mets, and he and he wins. He goes to the. He's the first manager to take a team in both leagues to the to the World Series, and he's um and he's up three games to two on the, on the dynastic um, Oakland A's team. And when he asked, and when he famously asked Tom Seaver, and this is just, uh, something Mets fans um uh, still haven't forgiven Yogi for. But Yogi's up three games to two, and he's got the best pitcher in baseball on his team um, and Tom Seaver, um, who he's had something of a strained relationship with. And he went to Seaver and said, okay, uh, he's had three days rest. Can you go? And Seaver said, give me the ball. And he said, okay. And people have asked me what I thought of that, what I think of that decision. It's like, if I have the best pitcher in baseball on my team and he tells me he can go, that's who ball. I'm going with. Yeah, of course. It's like I got Pedro a, one and, uh... I a chance to win.
0: Yeah. yeah. It's and, like Pedro and he only and the, and he, right. five outs away, and he, you know. Pedro
1: he only gave up three runs, but Catfish Hunter, not a bad pitcher, you know, you know, pitched, pitching against him. Um, you know, Mets weren't big hitters and they only got one run. You sure. know, and he ends up losing John Matlack, who who I talked to for this book, and agreed with both you know, with, with the moves that, that uh that Yogi made and he pitched on three days rest and he had a great year um in seventy three. And, uh, he gave, he had, he made two bad pitches and both of them were hit for two run home runs, one by Bert Campanares and one by, um, Reggie Jackson. And they lose four, you know, they lose four to one. And then he goes to the Yankees and boy, I'll tell you what, his wife, Carmen of 65 years, who's definitely, you know, one of the stars of, of this book, yep. um, and, you know, a real partner, um, in everything you know, business decisions about contracts, um, she really, really didn't want him to take any of the managing jobs, but especially the one um, in in uh, you know after the '83 season, and um, because that was George Steinbrenner at his worst. I was a sports editor during that time, covering you know having a beat writer covering the Yankees, and I can tell you that I had trouble hiring people to cover the Yankees in the '80s because nobody wanted it. Deal with George Steinbrenner during that time because yeah. I mean this is this is the era where he was firing two and three managers a season, right? Yeah, uh, coming and, back
0: and getting fired and coming back. Oh, and, yeah. God, yeah, yeah.
1: And Yogi Yogi took the team. Gossage famously left after '83, and um, and you know saying I'll never play for the Fat Man again. And um, you know, and he makes Dave Rigetti, who was a, uh, a very good um, um, starting pitcher turns him into an ace relief pitcher. I don't think Yogi gets near the cr- kind of credit that, that he should have for, for making that transition. And, um, you know, they end up finishing, um, third to, uh, that was the year that the Tigers won the pennant in June, went 35 and five and just ran away with everything. And, uh, you know, Yogi, um, Steinbrenner announces that he's going to, uh, give Yogi a, the full season the next year to prove himself. And, you know, by the second game of the season, he's already talking about firing him. And 16 games in, in Chicago, he, um, he sends um, Clyde King, his general manager, and Clyde King walks into the, into the uh, manager's room and tells him, I'm really sorry, this is really a hard thing for me to do, but, you know, I got to let you go. George, George wants, uh, you know, Billy back. And Yogi actually told the writers that day that he would um, don't worry you'll see me around the park because I want to come see Dale play because the Yankees had traded for his son Dale from the Pirates um, over the off season and uh, but I think by the time he got home and by the time he talked it over with his wife that he had come to 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 realize that you know just what a bad shake he had gotten from Steinbrenner. And, uh, his, a good friend of his who lived in Montclair, New Jersey, where Yogi lived, was John McMullen, who, uh, owned the Astros, and, and actually offered Yogi the managing job, and Yogi didn't want to do it, and, uh, convinced them to be a bench coach, and he was a bench coach for four years, and wrapped up in, after the 89 season, and he told Guidry, uh, Ron Guidry, who I spent a lot of time with for this book, who got very, very close with Yogi in the last decades of his life. And he said that Yogi said that those years um, between 1989 until 1999, when he, when he came back to the Yankees, were probably the worst 10 years of his life. That he just was, separ- a, he was separated from baseball. And when Yogi looked in the mirror, he saw, he saw pinstripes. You know, sure. and I was that, was that was really really difficult for him.
0: I was telling my brother about the book, and my brother's a Yankees fan. But he's, you know, I'm almost forty, but he's you know eleven years younger than that. So I was telling him about it. And I'm like telling him about this and how he's away for this long, and he comes back in '99, and it's the most like almost the most amazing Yogi Bear thing ever. If it wasn't for all ever. these other amazing things, but like he comes back and. It's knocked off the back pages by, you know, a perfect game. Like he, it's just unbelievable. If you want to talk about it for a second, like I was, I like sure. my brother didn't know the I mean, story. You know, he, and He's like, you got to be kidding me. You know, like that's he comes, like
1: he comes back. Opening Hollywood day, would throw your, it out. You Nation, yeah. and then in July, um, and I don't remember the exact date. If you'll excuse me on that one, but. Uh, you know, in 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 some time, it was sweltering day in, in mid July, yeah. right around this time, um, and uh, the Yankees are playing the the, um, the Montreal Expos, and uh, and Yogi had a had a habit of leaving games in the sixth inning to beat the traffic, and you know he'd watch the rest of the Yankee games at home, but this game he's sitting in the box with his family, all his grandkids and 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 his and his sons and and, and daughter in laws and you know by the fifth inning it's like something's happening here. You know, by the sixth inning he's certain something's happening here. And of course it's David Cohn pitches a perfect game. And and they just happened to on that day on Yogi Berra Day at Yankee Stadium in nineteen ninety nine, who do they invite to be there with Yogi but Darn Larson?
0: Unreal. <laughs> it's just unreal. And
1: and how many game how many pitches Says David Cone pitched his perfect
0: game. Same as Larson did.
1: Nope. No. Larson threw ninety-seven pitches. Oh, okay. Um, he threw uh, Cone threw 88? Uh, eighty-eight. Pitches. Eighty-eight. Yogi's yeah. number of course being eight. sure. Yeah, you can't make this stuff up. No. You know.
0: Yeah, my brother's like Hollywood would throw that out. You know, like
1: a, exactly. They wouldn't. Exactly. Let,
0: they wouldn't let the Yogi Berra movie end with such a ridiculous story that couldn't have happened. But
1: that couldn't have happened, yeah. right? And it's just, and then, but that was, I mean, that was kind of Yogi's life. Yes. You know, I mean, he, he, things just, you know, good, good things, good things happen to good people, I guess. And, you know, Yogi was a really good man and boy, he had a lot of good things happen to him.
0: Uh, The book is called, again, Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask. Uh, And you can get it, obviously, wherever you can get a book. It's not hard to find. Um, I want to ask you one more thing, and. I want, to, I want to be careful about how I word this because it's political, but I don't want to talk about the political part of it. Not only am I interested in books, but I'm interested in writers and the writers and the process. You know, The first thing I wanted to ask you is like, well, why'd you write this book? I'm like, just as interested in that stuff as the book. And I've been thinking about this a little bit and I'm really interested because your Twitter is very political. Um, Yes. Very political, and very political to one end of the spectrum. And it it really doesn't matter which way. It's left, but it could be just as easily right. doesn't matter. It's uh, very political and very fiercely to your political opinion. And I remember when Jeff Perlman put out Gunslinger, um, his Brett Favre book, probably right around the time you started doing this, Mm -hmm. or maybe a little bit after that. I know my daughter was born at least. So sixteen, seventeen, something like that it came out. And um, he is also very much the same way on Twitter. And I remember talking to him about how many people in Wisconsin, you know, had told him that they would never read his book and how it, he said it really hurt that book. Um, and we talked about the pros and cons of that. And I was thinking about about that with this book because, and I was thinking about it again in a non-political way, but more in the 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 medium of Twitter and its value, and it just seems like you have sort of made a conscious decision to say it probably Twitter probably doesn't have much value in terms of selling or not selling this book because you don't use it for that very much. you very much use it for the other thing which could potentially be a negative for the book. And I'm just curious to get your thought process about this, like what you think about Twitter and how it affects book sales and how a strong political opinion, and again, one direction or the other, the opinion is almost irrelevant in this conversation, in my opinion. Um, Right. Right, like how you feel about as we get further and further divided between these two sides and how staunchly people are digging their heels in on whatever side they are. Um I just thought it'd be a really interesting perspective to hear what you think about Twitter or media in general uh, the social media platforms in general and um kind of just hear from you why you decided to go the way you have it's interesting to me um,
1: well i i'll I'd be lying to say it didn't occur to me okay and you know and one of the things that you know one of the things that i that that uh, i That comes to mind is the is the famous quote from uh, from Michael Jordan, who wouldn't endorse um, somebody. Right, the um, sneakers.
0: North Carolina Senate race. He
1: wouldn't endorse a Senate candidate against Jesse Helms, who was a proud racist. Right. I mean, he wasn't just Helms was was a a proud racist.
0: Right, a bad guy.
2: Yeah.
1: And he wouldn't and he wouldn't endorse the the the, and it was a black candidate um, for 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 um, Senate. And Jordan, and when asked why, he said, well, Republicans buy sneakers, too. Right. And he finally admitted
0: that in the documentary that he said that.
1: Um, He did say it, right? Yeah. And and it's like, you know, I'm doing a book about a guy who was true to himself. And, you know, part of the process, uh, you know, People who have read the book and, and you have, I mean, I don't write a traditional biography. This isn't according to someone and somebody said, and on this date this happened. This book is written in real time, uh and it's in present tense, and it's all scenes and dialogue. And um to do that, to do it like that, I kind of feel like, you know, as I've explained it to my wife who acted in, in, in high school and actually took up acting again when she became a book widow, um, <laughs> was that, you know, you kind of, you need to get in character. I mean, I needed to feel to the world and understand the world the way Yogi Berra um, interpreted the world in order to be able to present his point of view in this book. And, you know, having spent four and a half years Um, with this guy and um, growing to admire him a great deal for, um, for, and his politics were not my politics. Um, I mean, he wasn't a, you know, he wasn't a, I mean, his, his wife was a fundraiser for Republicans. I mean, we, yeah, Marswell. he seemed
0: to have leaned right at the very least, right? right. Yeah,
1: yes, yeah. yes, he leaned right. Yeah, um, not not a not a you know rabid extremist. Uh, a more classical president.
0: East Coast Republican of the Reagan right. Era. More
1: Rockefeller yeah. Republicans, yes. for those who can remember what those used to be. Those are now called Democrats, right? Um, or mother Democrats, and and you know, after spending four and a half years um, emotionally invested in someone who. Whatever he believed is how he believed to do it, to make believe I don't, just, you know, I would have felt like a hypocrite.
0: Okay, a couple things on that because I knew you'd say that, to be honest. Um, And I thought about what I would say if you did say that. Uh, First thing is because I'm going to get an email email if I don't say it. It was Harvey Grant was the – or excuse me, Harvey Gant, not Grant. Um, Yeah, Gant was the name of two Ts, the guy who – Ran against Helms. Um, Here's what I was thinking about this, because I was thinking it through, too, a little bit. Um, I don't think you are disobeying your principles by, instead of talking about politics on Twitter, talking about the book. And I think something that I think, and you don't have to think this, it's just my opinion, is that we waste our time on Twitter screaming our politics because we have... I have changed nobody's mind and you have changed nobody's mind. And so often we fall into these traps where we put ourselves in kind of Twitter echo chambers and are, you know, agreeing or disagree or, you know, mostly agreeing with the people we agree with, you know, we're blocking or muting people who disagree with our, and I'm speaking generally. I'm not talking about me or you, I'm um, the You're Royal, fine. the Royal us, you know, um, yeah. you know, we find ourselves blocking those opinions and, you know, creating bubbles and echo chambers for ourselves. And I was strictly, again, like I said, this wasn't about politics. It's more about business and writing. You know, thinking like, does the Twitter account serve any political purpose? I'm not so sure. I'm convinced it does anymore. Um, especially for guys like us. We have very similar Twitter follower counts. Um, you know, we're not, we don't have 42 million followers or anything like that. Uh, right. And, you know, could you sell you you have so much passion for this project, which I love you know we've had so much fun talking about this, you work so hard on it, you know you made your wife a a book widow, yeah you know
1: back spe- time right,
0: you spend all this time. I would just think like, man, get this book to as many people. I would be so if this was my book, I would be so against turning anyone off, and I don't think it's a. I don't think we can say it's like Jordan's decision because we don't have the no, influence, I'm you know. Gordon. Right? We're right. not. And I'm not saying you were saying that. I'm just saying, like, I don't think you risk alienating your principles at all by just focusing on your book. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, I, I have. I mean, I have um, promoted the book on Twitter, um, but I've also written, you know, stayed on on, on politics, um, and to tell you the truth, I I don't know that. I use it to change people's minds as, as much as I do to inform the people who do follow me because, you know, I, I'm in a business where I'm lucky. I, I, I get to spend my day reading,
2: sure. you know, yeah. I mean,
1: I, I'm, I, I drive my wife crazy because we'll watch MSNBC and I'll be telling her things past the, what the people that were are talking, because I've already read the same stories they've already read. And, and plus more than, than they have read. And um, so, uh, you know, I, get, I, I think that, that in, in terms of why I do it, that's, that's probably it. Um, in terms of am I, am I going to turn some people off from this that might not buy the book? Possibly. It's debatable. Um, although, I only although, brought it up
0: I only brought it up because yeah, just although I'm
1: not sure that the I'm people not sure either. who yeah. um who would be turned off
0: your anyway. feet anyway. Right. That's fair. That's totally fair. You I only brought that part you, that of was, it up.
1: I'll tell you a political story about, about yogi though. Sure. I'd love um, to hear that it. I didn't put it in the book. I mean I, I ended up cutting sixty pages out of this book. And the book is five hundred and six pages um of of text there's another 70 pages of, of, of notes and you know index and bibliography and things like that but it's 506 pages long read fast i'm told so please readers don't be worried about reading a long book oh, i read it in a weekend um,
0: i read it in a weekend but
1: there were, yeah. there were there were 60 pages that i cut out and there were things that i never even got that I never even wrote because i knew that the book was going to be too long And one of the things I didn't write was that, I mean, Yogi, Yogi went to George Steinbrenner's box at at, uh, Yankee Stadium where Yogi watched all his games when he when after they made. And by the way, just so so your listeners know, after they patched things up, when George Steinbrenner came in and apologized to Yogi at the Yogi Berra Museum in um, uh, Montclair, New Jersey, um, they became friends. They became good friends. And um, uh, Yogi was really shook the day, the, the day that, that, that George passed. And he would go to George's box, and, they, and he would watch a game. And he was there to watch a game. Everyone else in George's box was there to be seen you know there was you know Billy Crystal would be there and and Barbara Walters would be there and all the politicians <laughs> right. and i mean you know it was especially in the, in you know in the, i mean the Yankees have been so successful in in the in the, in the last you know couple of decades that it was a, it was a place to be seen
0: right especially and, in the Jeter era that run in the late 90s and that era oh, there yeah
1: absolutely yeah. right and and um people would come in and Yogi was like, I mean, Yogi was like, especially, you know, by, you know, by the time he was 70 and Yogi passed at 90, you know, Yogi was walking history. I mean, the man lived through so many errors and did so many things and saw so many things. This is a guy who stood on the field with DiMaggio and Babe Ruth, you know, was at D-Day, went through a depression, you know, becomes a television star, upstages the Aflac duck, you know, I mean, you know, wins, wins 10 world championships. I mean, he just, I mean, he, he literally is history, and people wanted to talk to him. And so every time he would go, I mean, people who I talked to who were regulars, um, like the bartender and, and like, the, like the former executive director of the museum who took Yogi to, to, to all these games, uh, would be amazed at, at all these people, all these stars would come to see him, except for one, the one guy that would walk right by Yogi because he was, always had to be the center of attention. Happens to be the person who is now in the White House.
0: <laughs> not a surprise, Not surprised by that.
1: And Yogi, and like I said, Yogi was Yogi was a Republican. Yogi was good friends with Richard Nixon.
0: Right, and uh, well, to be clear, though, Donald Trump was no Republican in nineteen ninety six no. or ninety no. seven. Mean. And
1: he's still, and he's, he's still, still not. A yeah,
0: he's still not. No. No. He's hijacked he's, the Donald Republican Trump Party. Is,
1: Donald Trump is Donald Trump.
0: Yeah, he's not anything. And, yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, but he would walk right by Yogi. wouldn't Wouldn't say a word walk outside because the way the, the way George's box is set up was well, is it's a big great big box right behind home plate and and then you walk out and there's a whole you know several rows of seats so you can either watch the game inside um in in comfort and 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 it's a big box it's not like a I mean it's like a big box and, and and then sit outside, and he would just walk right through, see that everybody was talking to the Yogi would say no attention to him, and would be there with Eric and, and and Don Jr, and they would walk outside they 'd sit outside for a couple of innings, watch the game and pick up, and they, he would walk right back through and, and never say never say hi to Yogi
0: <laughs> only
1: human it. being I think that ever that ever um, Treated Yogi like that.
0: Imagine not wanting to talk to Yogi Berra. I don't get it. Yeah, um,
1: and then, and then you know the interesting thing about thing about Yogi is Yogi. I mean, there's a, a really fun one of my, one of my favorite anecdotes in the book is when he goes to a, um, a state dinner at the White House when um, Ronald Reagan is the um, uh, is, is president, and so he's at the head table with, with Reagan and the I believe it was the, the, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. And um, and I'm sorry, but I forgot why I brought that story up.
0: <laughs> um, we were talking about um, Yogi and why would Donald Trump ignore oh, him? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, and this is a guy who was absolutely is comfortable sitting there with Ronald Reagan. Right. of the United States and the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. and uh when you would wa- you'd walk into the yankee l- locker room and there'd be yogi sitting there talking to the clubhouse guy and the security guys i mean every you know he was comfortable around everyone he was he never put on airs you know one of the things i've always been fascinated about covering sports you know cuz i mean by almost by definition we cover famous people and and so how do people handle their fame and a lot of people don't do well handling their fame. A lot of people, you know, they become famous and suddenly they don't remember all the other people they met on the way up, you know, as the saying goes. Um, that was not, you know, that wasn't Yogi. I mean, Yogi was just a, you know, he was just a regular guy. And you know, really on the field, really, really talkative. You know, famous stories about Yogi talking to people at bat. And there's a great story about him and Hank Aaron, where where he's he's t- talking to Hank Aaron during a World Series and telling him, you know, you, you know, Hank, you know, you want to turn the label, you you know, if it hits the label, you know, you know, if you can read the label, it means you it, you know you can hit it that way, and that's how you break your back. And he, and he, and Aaron turns to Yogi and says, "I'm not up here to read, Yogi. I'm up here to hit.
2: Stop."
1: <laughs> <laughs> And I mean, but off the field, quiet, never, you know, not not never didn't want attention, never sought the never sought the limelight when he would go to and he was always the Yankee most in demand, even when the Major was there, even when Mantle was there, the guy, of the Yankee that people wanted at their dinners and and banquets to, to talk was Yogi. But he would never. Uh, he would always tell the organizers. It always had to be a Q and A. You know, he would. He, he didn't do speeches. Didn't. Didn't do talks. You know, you have someone ask me questions. I'm there. I'll. I'm. I'm happy to be there. But if it's not that, that. That's not me and i mean just a uh, sh- quiet to the point of almost being shy if you can if you can believe that someone is famous and is comfortable in his own skin as yogi could be shy but that's that's a, that's who he was
0: well listen i'm really glad we really took our time and kind of dug through a lot of this the passion you have for this story pumps me up and if i didn't read the book and I listened to this I couldn't imagine not reading the book it's called yogi life behind the mask uh if you want to follow John on twitter he's at j o n p e s s a h tread lightly, but he is there
1: uh
0: <laughs> and um,
1: you can read the rest of the stuff on the website is is, is my website is non political
0: right it's simply again uh, the name.com j o n p e s s a h.com uh for i guess the non political version of the uh of John's social footprint on the internet, um, the book was amazing. And me, as a, I appreciate
1: it. Thank you so much.
0: Me, as sort of a classical New York Republican, you know, who grew up in the day of Ronald Reagan, and the in 2015, um, after the first Republican debate, I think there were 16 um, potential candidates on the stage, and my brother, who's similar to me, we ranked them from 1 to 16 on who we would want to win the nomination and face Hillary or Bernie, I guess, at that point. It could have been probably either or still. Right, either one, right. Right, and uh, I had Trump at 16 and my brother had him at 15, so... <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think a lot of people did.
0: Yeah, and he never got much higher than that on my list. You know, I think maybe he grew on some people, but um someday we'll have to have you back and we can... uh we can we'll have a political get debate. into the little bit more debate. It's not. I wanted to focus on the book tonight, and that's why I was also very careful when I was. I, wa- I was interested in the Twitter thing, but I wanted to talk about it in kind of a non-political way that focused on more like promotion and kind of the idea behind that. But um, thank you so much for all the time. Thanks for doing this again. I love the book. Uh, anything else you want to plug or mention that I didn't? In case.
1: No, I think we, we've we've covered a lot, and as you can tell, I can probably you know it'll be easy for me to rattle off another hour, and yeah, then I'm my sure wife we, will kill me.
0: Yeah, I was just thinking that I've made my wife a podcast widow tonight, um, <laughs> so I should wrap it up. But uh, thank you, and um, we got to do it again soon.
1: Sure, it's uh, been a pleasure. It really has.
0: All right, I want to thank John Pessa and Joe Maniello for being on the podcast today. Don't forget, you can find this episode and each episode of the Sportscasters on our SoundCloud page. It's soundcloud.com slash sports casters. You can find me on Twitter at sports underscore casters or email me the sportscasters at gmail.com. Uh, don't forget, we're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify, Stitcher. Wherever you listen to podcasts and if you're on Apple and are kind enough to give us a five-star review, to, that is appreciated. Greetings from Allentown with our friend Peter Winson at GF Allentown Pod. He put out an episode today about 1995 ECW. Check that out. Peter and I will be doing a Adams Division podcast in August, so look for details on that. Our friend Adrian Dater is trying to make his way into Canada so he can quarantine. And cover the Avalanche. Best luck to him. At a dater on Twitter. Follow him there. Uh, I was on the Place to Be Nation flagship podcast this week. We talked about a WWF show from Madison Square Garden in December of 1990. At Place, the number two B Nation on Twitter there. nation.com for more information. I uh, tweeted about this. You can find... Uh, the link to my episode and my Twitter as well. All right, one last thing for today, a quick one. Paula has moved into the world of T-Ball. Uh, one thing that Tammy and I promised ourselves and promised her uh, was that even though we were only going to have one child and she was going to be an only child, we were going to make sure that we would get her out and expose her to other children And as many activities as we could, Uh, we weren't going to give her a brother or sister. So we figured we owed it to her to get her out there and to do different things. And we've kept our word on that from right away. uh, She was in music class, swim class. She started ice skating, you know, a year and a half. Uh, Dancing she's done, soccer she's done. Uh, So we get her in, we get her signed up, we see how she likes it. Uh, skating and dance have been her two favorites so far, uh, but she's really, really been excited about t-ball. She loves to whack the ball, as she says. It's interesting in the COVID world, she need to get her own helmet, she get her own bat, obviously she has her own mitt, uh, but I remember when I played baseball, we would share one or two bats, one or two batting helmets. Not the case in the pro-COVID world. There's Helmets everywhere, bats everywhere. Um, they gave her a purple jersey, purple ball cap. She's on Dash, Team Dash, which is a supermarket uh, here. And what's really interesting about T-ball uh, for a four-year-old is it least resembles the game that she's playing of any sport I've ever seen. Uh, it's hilarious. Kids run the wrong way on the bases. There's no one in the outfield because they can't hit it that far anyway. Uh, I'm not really sure what position anyone plays. They don't keep score. There's outs, but kids don't even know when they're out, when they're safe. Uh, she's had three practices so far. She's got her first game tomorrow or Saturday, tomorrow. And uh, it's really, it's really something to watch. I mean, she is very enthusiastic about it. She loves to make friends. Uh, and she's doing really great, but, man, it's hilarious, because, you know, when she signed up for soccer, they kicked the soccer ball all around. It really looked like soccer. You know, they kept one kid in one end of the net, another kid in the end of the n- other net, and then they just ran around and kicked it. looked like soccer. You know, skating. It looks like she's learning to skate. You know, it looks like skating. And uh, swimming. She's in the pool. She's swimming. They're teaching her, you know, back floats and it always looks like what she's this does not look like baseball Uh, this is organized chaos and it's amazing to watch Uh, it's great for me I just sit back the team has five coaches five coaches uh, for 12 uh, t-ball players and then at one practice they had another dad who needed to help out which made it six coaches two coaches per kid the rules are very interesting Uh, Governor Cuomo has decided they cannot sit in the dugout. Um, Only two parents are spectators per kid. Although that seems impossible to keep track of. It's just a giant park with all these diamonds. I don't know how they know who's there to watch who. Um, There's all kinds of rules. The coaches are in masks. They're doing the best they can to get through it. And I appreciate... You know, what the coaches are doing, what the league's doing uh, to get the kids out there. They're doing the best they can. You know, it's a tough year for all that, all that kind of a thing. But yeah, T-ball dad here. Big game Saturday, four innings. Every kid hits once each inning, each half inning on each team. They just bat around one time. Switch sides, bat around, switch sides. They do it four times. They don't keep score. There are outs, though. Although, you could get potentially 12 outs an inning. If everyone hits once. Uh, yeah, but T-Ball. I'd be interested to hear your stories about T-Ball around the country. Is it like this? Is it different? You can email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com. Uh, Joe Buck, Greg, Greg Wachinski. Talking to both of them. They'll be on soon. Be safe.